But 40 years ago, how much time do we have? Uh, actually, it, I'll be real brief. Uh, when I was in college, I uh, felt as though the reason I was falling asleep in my class had nothing to do with the fact that I was up till two and three in the morning with my friends. Um, it had everything to do with the professor was boring. Um, and it set me on to this idea of, is there a better way to, to train and teach? And so the late 70s, early 80s, started thinking about adult-centered educa education, which had, definitely has much validity. But that set me on a path of going then, um, after getting a degree in theology as an undergrad, and then going on for my uh, Master of Divinity, I really wanted to do non-traditional, localized pastoral training. Um, so after seminary, um, which was in South Carolina, went up to Wisconsin to do a PhD at Marquette University, and was going to start a presbytery or start a, a seminary-based training there in Wisconsin or wherever I, I could find a place to do it. Well, uh, the Lord uh, made it quite clear to me, um, as a Presbyterian, we don't speak that often of "I heard the, the God speak to me and say," but as a good uh, Good Calvinist, I heard, Vogel, you're an idiot. Uh, you don't, you've never been a pastor. How can you do this? And I went, yeah, that's, that's true. And so uh, set aside the, the dissertation um, that I was working on and went to plant a church and did that then for, for yeah, 20, 26 years. And it was, a, it was a joy. It was great. That whole time, I kept every hire I would make at the church would be a young guy. The first guy was 20 years old. We put him through college. We put him through seminary. Um, that's why I have gray hair right now, was work, working with him um, when he was 20. Uh, but he was with us for 12 years and a pure delight. Uh, and so we continued doing that. Uh, I noticed that one of the difficulties that we found was not so much in their academic training. They were well-trained. Often, though, there was other issues that hadn't been worked through that, that you don't get in seminary. And so in the, around 2015 or so, started us down a, a path of how can we equip on that level. At the same time, Tim had mentioned, Wisconsin, um, PCA is a bit of, seemed to be a bit of an oxymoron. Up until 2005, the map of the PCA included the provinces of Canada and the 49 of the states, except Wisconsin. We were grayed out from the map. The technical term was a region destitute of the gospel, which made me feel so good. Uh, my, my daughter, when she was in college, was working at Ridgehaven, the denominational camp, and she picked up um, the, uh, the person who at that time was the head of MTW, and uh, our, our missions arm for a conference there at Ridgehaven. And he asked her, you know, who are you? Where are you from? Is her driving from the airport? And she said, well, I'm from Wisconsin. He said, well, how did you get hooked up to Ridgehaven? Because we don't have any pastors in Wisconsin. And she said, my daddy's a pastor, you know. But, and so, you know, we, it was slow going in Wisconsin. It was hard to recruit planters and pastors to come to Wisconsin. Um, we have snow there. You had snow here, I know. Um, but it, 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 how many of you after last week want to move to Wisconsin and have that from October to May, right? Exactly. Um, so what we realize is we're going to have to grow them up on our own. We, we went about 15 years without successfully getting a church planted. In 2010, we finally got one uh, going. We had five. We got another one going, and that was great. 
Well, from 2010 until now, in the last 10 years, we've gone from five or six, um, and we now have close to 20. Um, and when we started the program and raising up leaders in 2017, we had three guys who were willing to do it. One of them did it, I won't say under derision or, or, or uh, undue, undue pressure, he was my son. Um, they, they had the opportunity of getting seminary for free, so that was the enticement. Uh, we'll pay all your bills if you come and do this. Or, you know, they were all from Wisconsin. Um, we now have 25 men in, in four years um, who are preparing in Wisconsin. So it's a great opportunity uh, to think about what does it mean to raise up the next generation. And in some ways, uh, when, when Arthur and I talk about this, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to our passage in the text, is the, the understanding, um, I just realized I, I highlighted the wrong passage here in my Bible. So I found that now I would have started reading tomorrow night. Um, saying, you know, this is not missions. Mission, this is church planning, isn't missions. Well, I'll tell you what, in, in 1995, when we had those five churches, um, there was, I forgot, I don't know, I haven't done the math, but, you know, we were giving to cross-cultural overseas missions. When we started investing in churches to start new churches, um, one church in particular, we probably, as a presbytery, contributed about $100,000. It's a lot of money. That church now gives each year $100,000 to overseas missions. So, and, and that's not to that same extent as these other churches, but to a lot of the churches. So the investment we made in starting churches has an effect around the world. And I'm gonna want us to take a step back and go, what about the investment in those men who are investing in those, those churches? And so we will be looking tonight in um, First Chronicles 29 and uh, when, when Tim said, this is our theme verse, I said, okay, I'm going to preach on that. I wonder if, 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 if the, my pastoral and, uh, and rhetorical gymnastics can make my point here. And I read through it once, and I said, certainly it is in this, this passage. So let me, let, let me start off. I'll, we'll read the passage to start. First um, Chronicles 29, verses 1 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom, God alone, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. And the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that, I have provided for the holy house I have a treasure of my own of gold and silver because of my devotion to the house of my God. I give it to the house of my God. 30,000 talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house, for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, silver for things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself, today to the Lord God. 
Then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their free will offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehiel Gerashai. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Here is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God, do enable us as your word is open, that you would open our minds, our hearts to hear, to receive, to respond with faithful obedience to this, your word. Guide us that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my hearts might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. I don't know if you have seen the TV show Shark Tank. It's really probably one of the few shows on television that in many ways exemplifies the kind of the spirit of the American dream, that entrepreneurial, um, you know, we're going to make something new kind of thought. It's been on for 12 seasons, and the ABC reality show has given startup companies a, a really wonderful opportunity, an opportunity of a lifetime to present their products to do a pitch in front of actual millionaire investors. These investors, are, they're the sharks. They are commanding uh, business empires them, themselves. And it uh, can be interesting to watch what products come, but then to watch the haggling back and forth of how much are they going to invest? What are they going to require in return? Jamie Simonoff appeared on the season five of of Shark Tank. Uh, he was asking for an investment of $700,000 for an idea he had come up with. He thought, if I could combine my doorbell and make it a video, that would be a great thing. Kevin O'Leary, one of the, the sharks, bid on the deal, but he insisted on 10% of the sales royalties and a 5% uh, stake in the company. Simonoff made a counteroffer. O'Leary withdrew it. Simonoff walked off with nothing. Another shark, not on the show, but if you will, a person that is said to have a few extra coins in his pocket, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, liked the idea. He decided he'd just invest on his own. And so Amazon changed the name that uh, Simonoff came up with, a doorbot, doesn't, real, doesn't have a ring to it, said, we're going to call it Ring. And Jamie Simonoff got $1 billion for his idea. Sometimes investments work out pretty well, and sometimes people miss the opportunity to make an investment. The premise of Shark Tank that is, a good is really that a good idea is never good enough. Just because you have an idea doesn't necessarily mean it's going to get any traction. Why? Because we can't do it on our own. We need other people to come alongside of us. They may not take all the credit, they may not change it radically, but they have something we lack and their investment can be an important part of that. Now an investor wants a share of the returns. They're not just doing it out of the generosity of their heart, just wanting to give away money. 
but there are all sorts of different types of investments that, that we can make. Sometimes they can be financial investments such as that, but there are times we can make an investment in a person or an idea or a place that we may never have a tangible response to, but we, but, 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 but we make the investment because we believe others may benefit from it. And that is what we see here in 1 Chronicles 29. Now, keep in mind, Chronicles, you know, if you, if you ever read through it, you're going, I've read all this before. It's in Samuel and Kings. It's a, it's a repeating of the story. And for good reason. Understand that, that Chronicles was written after the return from captivity. As they've came back and are starting all over again, rebuilding Solomon's temple that had been destroyed. Rebuilding the wall. This is the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. This is the, you know, the prophets Haggai and, and Zechariah and Malachi are at work. This is 500 years later. We have the same story. But it's told in order so that the, the, the hearers during the time of the chronicler can go, that's what happened then. What does it tell us today? And that same truth is alive and at work as we open his word. So we've heard it read saying, what does this story have for us? Because here we encounter King David, the end of his life, aged and ailing. He's addressing Solomon and the leaders of the nation. And what he says to them is what we need to hear as well. That we are to invest in the next generation. Because there's a need, there are resources, and there is joy in the investment. The first verse we see here, there is a need to invest. When David the king said all the assembly, and he, he lays this out again, we, we know what's happening. There's a transition that's, that's taking place. David is at the end of his life, and he understands, indeed, that it, it is time to pass things on. If, if you recall back in, in, um, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 7, when, when David first wanted to have this idea of building a temple for the Lord, and Nathan said, yes, do it, and then God said to Nathan, Nathan, you didn't ask. No, it's not for David. When the Lord then has the message for David in, 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 in 2, Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, the Lord says, When your days are fulfilled, this is spoken to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now David understands this. He's at his end, end of his life, and he understands that Solomon is going to be the next in line but of a very long line that is to come. And so with that transition, there is a need to invest. But David points out three issues here in that first verse. Notice what he says about Solomon. My Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen. That's a, that's a powerful stamp of approval. God has chosen him. But the second part, he's young and inexperienced. And then third, in the work 
is great. <laughs> How do you combine all of those three? What, what, do, you, what do you need to, to be able to, to handle moving forward? Those three elements were critical in David's time. They were critical in the time of the chronicler 500 years later. They're just as important now when we think of transition. Here, God's, what we see with this is that God's choice does not exclude the need for training. Just because, because we have some sense God's hand is on this person, that God is going to use them. That's great. doesn't mean we skip the training process. They're still young and, in, and inexperienced. And the work is great. We don't want to mess this up. It's too important to ignore. The goal as well, that's, that's here. It's, it's really important. The work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. This is not just about David's name and his reputation, or just even his family line. This is God's house that we're talking about. It, it's interesting, the, 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 the text uses the word palace there. Um, this is one of the evidences this, this was written uh, much later, because that's a, that's a Persian word. Uh, just like the word Derek that's used, I think, in verse 7 uh, for one of the coins uh, named after Darius, the king of Persia. Um, but it, it's, it's taking this ancient, this 500-year-old story and saying, we're going through it now as well. Because you understand, the Israelites, as, as they come back with, with Ezra and Nehemiah, and they've returned and they're going to rebuild Solomon's temple. The second temple is going to come up. And if you've read the, the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, it's not going well. The people are not being generous. And so the story is being retold going, you know, your forefathers, they contributed well. What are you going to do? The goal was to underscore the need for this investment very much so. Still true today. You know, the church, the bride of Christ remains the focus of where and how God is at work. Church is that continuance, if you will, of the temple. We are faced with a monumental task as we want to see the church expanding throughout the world. And if we're going to do that, there's transition things happening all the time. They're chosen by God. They're young and inexperienced, and the work is great. So what are we going to do? How are we going to respond and think about that? And we're not the first nor the last myopic generation. That is, a little nearsighted. We, we, we so easily can think, and this has been true throughout the history of, of humankind, and it's, it's been true in the church. We are so focused on what we are doing here and now, we don't think, but what about 10 years from now, 20 years from now? You know, you kind of recognize, and, and, and for, for someone like me, you know, having served for, for, for all those years at that church, it was like, I'll stay here till I'm 70. Are they prepared to deal with me when I'm 70? Am I prepared to deal with them when I'm 70? And so what are we going to do? And we, with this session, we often talk about strategic plans and, and what does that succession plan look like? And as we made great plans, they didn't always come about. But oftentimes we just don't, don't do that. No, planning is, is sometimes not convenient. It's just like when you think of investing. It's not always convenient to save for retirement. The diet can start next week. Exercise always looks better than any time other than at 6 in the morning when I roll out of bed. One of the most obvious ways is that we, we do that is we ignore 
developing leaders. I can't tell you how many times I've done presentations with, with, with pastors who've been in ministry 15, 20 years, and, and we're in, in a room. I said, I want you to sketch out for me, what is your pipeline of development to have not just people coming to faith and, and maybe becoming a healthy member or maybe even being an elder or a deacon, becoming an officer in the church or leading a ministry. What, uh, what is your plan to develop your replacements? Zero. Say, I have a plan. And at times I get, some have, but not, none of the ones I've asked that question have. And so what we see here is what God has, is doing through David is showing that, that what has had to happen in Israel, building the second temple, should be happening now as well. See, in the garden, when God spoke to our first, our first parents, and they transgressed, his plan was for generations, wasn't it? The seed will come. He will crush the serpent's head. He raised up Moses. Then he raised, also raised up Joshua. Elijah had his Elisha. We'll look at that tomorrow night. Paul had his Timothy see that on Sunday morning. Now, what is the state of the church right now? In 1992, um, uh, surveys that were done found that the Protest the median age of Protestant clergy was 44 years of age. One in three pastors was under the age of 40 at that time. One in four was over 55. Only 6% were 65 or older. That was just almost 30 years ago. Well, in 2017, the survey was done again, so it's four years old, but still pertinent. In that 25-year period, from 1992 to 2017, the average age went from 44 to 54. Yet 30 years later, one in seven pastors were under 40. Half were over 50. Those over 65, three times what they were 25 years prior. And it goes back even further. If you look at the statistics in 1968, 55% of all Protestant clergy were under the age of 45. That is, the majority of all churches had pastors in their 20s and 30s and early 40s. In 2017, that's less than a quarter are those ages. Now, that's a lot of numbers, a lot of statistics. What does that mean? Well, on the one hand, we can easily in the PCA say, well, we're, we're doing better than that because the average age of the PCA is still about 44 years of age. That is, we have a, a relatively young clergy, pastors, teaching pastors. But we're all aging, and we're only going in one direction. We're not replacing as quickly as we should be. And so, uh, as we're, we're looking at this, we're, we're, we, we have to be like David, see that there's a need to invest, not just because there's a graying of the clergy, but there's a task that is so great out there. There are those whom God is calling into this role that is vital. The trouble is they don't have the, the experience. The Lord is calling young men into ministry, and they're young and they're experienced. The task is great, and that means we, the body of Christ, God's people, need to invest. This is, this is where NextGen is seeking to step into the gap and, and enabling pastors and, and leaders here in the States and by God's grace soon in other parts of the world to do this very task. The need is great. The need to invest is there. Secondly, the resources to invest. They're there. It's amazing. 
when uh, in verses 2 to 8 and the listing of all these resources. Notice how, how David starts it off. And, and this is a sign of a, of, of a good leader. He doesn't start with the plea saying, look, you know, Solomon's chosen by God. He's young and experienced. His task is great. So what are you people going to do about it? But David steps up. He steps up in two ways. First, in verse 2, he, 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 he begins by saying, I have access to the national treasury, and I will take money you know, that goes for the nation and invest in the temple. But he doesn't stop there. He then opens up his checkbook, pulls out his wallet, opens up his portfolio, says, I have my own money. And so he, he leads by that sense, giving, you know, and the estimates here seem astronomical, some 262 tons of silver, 112 tons of gold. And he says, it's the gold from Ophir. And we all go, wow, where's that? We don't know, but it's impressive. Because about five or six times in the Old Testament, they speak of the gold of Ophir. It's amazing. They think it, it could be North Africa, all right, Wes and Kim, could be Arabia, or it could be India. Meaning, it could be anywhere. So, but it, that was impressive. And, and notice what he does. When he does that, he then invites the others to invest as well. That, that, that end of verse 5, that plea that he gives, who then will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord? Powerful call to everyone else. But if you look at what David gave, they didn't have to give anything. He took care of it all. But that's not the point. He was inviting them into participation. So it's not like, yeah, we have enough. No, it's not about the amount that we have. It's the amount that we are able to give and participate together. And David calls for them to follow suit and to give willingly, he has that, that question, who will consecrate himself? That is a powerful word, consecrate. It, it, it literally means who will fill his hands. Well, this term, we, we'll see it in, in Exodus 28, uh, verse 41, when Aaron is consecrating his sons to be priests. It was used in the Old Testament, especially in, in Leviticus, of consecration for those who were entering the Old Testament priesthood, sons of Levi. Now David uses that language. He picks up the language of the priesthood regarding the temple and then applies it to all of Israel. You can almost say it's this early glimmering of a priesthood of all believers. He, he's saying, this is your Worship. This is how we are going to make sacrifice for this new, this new temple. For the priests to do their work, it took all the people in Israel to invest. And then the, that long listing of, you know, iron for iron things, gold for gold things, listing, and, and the amounts that are, are listed. We're, we're seeing here that the call to invest is powerful. We're called to invest our resources for the next generation. Now, now, investing is not an easy thing to do, is it? Even for those who've had success in the past. I, 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 what, I, I've heard it said that if, if you want to make a small fortune on the, in the stock market, do you know how you do it? You start with a really big fortune. 
and then you end up with a small portion. But the fact of the matter is, investing is what we're called to do, and it's never an easy thing. Martin Luther once said that there were three conversions in, in the Christian faith. Three. Conversion of the heart, the will, the emotions. Conversion of the head, the intellect, understanding. You know what the third one was, he said? Conversion of the purse. <laughs> because as Christians, we get the heart, we get the head. I'm sitting on my, my wallet, and it's not moving. No, our passage speaks of freely giving as a form of consecration. Now, what does that mean for us today? Now, let's, we're not even going to talk right now about, as that old Capital One commercial used to say, what's in your wallet? No. Let's talk about what is being done already and see how that can help motivate. Again, this is where in one specific way, there are many others, but specifically what Next Gen Pastors does is this sense of training mentors. When it, as it was being developed, people said, so Chris, are you going to travel around and do all the training? I go, well, that doesn't work. There's one of me and I'm only, I'm aging out and uh, I don't want to, I love traveling, but I can't. It, it would be foolish. So instead, what we do is we train older pastors, experienced pastors, to train people in their own areas. And it's amazing what we find in churches, the number of young men who want to be trained for ministry. They're out there. They don't necessarily want to quit their job, sell their house, move their family to a, a, a city somewhere, to Orlando or St. Louis, Charlotte, Philadelphia. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not an easy thing necessarily. They want to stay in where they're from. And when we do that, we can see people being raised up in a powerful way. Now, what NextGen does and doesn't do, we don't do the academics. There are great places that are doing academics. The Covenant, the Reform, the Westminster. There, there are good seminaries out there. And there are some non-traditional ways that it, it can be done. LAMP Seminary, Leadership and Ministry Preparation, which is great for those that can't access a master's level but, but would do it as a bachelor's. Third Mill and others. The academic opportunities are out there because now we've all learned uh, we, we don't have to necessarily be physically together. There are some negative aspects of that. But so said there are a lot of hybrid formats and distance learning that can take place. So the academic is an important leg. The on-the-job training is absolutely vital. You, you, know, I, you don't want a pastor who's never been trained in a church to come and be your pastor. They have all the book learning. They have never done it. Just like if you want a brain surgeon who has read all the books and never been in the operating room. What we do is that third, the third leg of the stool. You heard this on the video. Academics are great. Got on-the-job training. It's character formation. It's, it, you know, it's that old, old phrase. Um, you may have heard it in your business. It's the hard skills that get you hired. It's the soft skills that get you fired. You know how to do your job? We'll hire you. But now that you're here in the office or, or on the factory floor, and you're a jerk, you're not going to last long. I don't care how much you know, you're just not working well. 
And so what NextGen comes along and says, look, we need to, to help invest in these young and inexperienced people called by God with these skills for the task is great in spiritual formation. How are they engaging the word themselves, their own hearts? And that's what we'll be looking at the cohort uh, tomorrow. That's the introduction of what is spiritual formation. Soul care, self-care. Self-care is not selfish. Are you eating and reading and exercising? And are you taking care of your own physical body? Pastors are horrible at that. Emotional intelligence, cultural intelligence. How to lead. They don't teach you that at seminary. They really can't. But you got to learn. What about your own marriage and family? And those areas, those three legs make it absolutely vital. So those, those are the resources that are being provided. Well, now what? Well, now we've got a great opportunity. Where does covenant come in? Before you even think of writing a check, one thing I'd ask of you is give something that is more precious, more valuable to you than your money, if that opens up, your sons and daughters to the kingdom. You know, this is, I, I, there have been so many times in talking with, with Christian uh, parents and, and they, they express a dismay or uh, not really happy that their son or their daughter wants to, to go overseas and be a missionary. They, they, you know, the campus work, and you're not going to get paid much for that. That's not a career move. And frankly, a pastor, you know, respect level is kind of dropped kind of low. That's not really, you could do so much better. I've heard parents say, you could do so much better than that. And these are upstanding Christians saying that. No, that is really where we need to start. Having for you to have those conversations with your kids, with your grandchildren, and say, how are you going to spend your life for yourself, for the kingdom of God, leaving an impact in the world that is unbelievable? Get them excited about that. And then the second, next thing you can do is support what Tim's doing, what your pastor is doing with the cohort as he is pouring himself and Dan is pouring themselves into this cohort, giving them that mentoring that is so needed for the task is so great. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say, the next gen can always use your support as well. And what, what happens when we do that? When we see that the need is great, we see that the resources are there, joy is the response. Verse 9, then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, for with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David, the king, also rejoiced. You know, there is a joy that comes with heartfelt investment, and that, it's a great theme that you have for this, this missions conference. That giving is not drudgery or duty. It is an expression of joy. It really picks up what, what we see back up in verse 5, uh, the end of verse 5, when he, he calls them, who will offer willingly consecrating himself today to the Lord. That this idea of a willingness of giving out of our abundance that produces joy. In verse 9, that, re, that, that word rejoice denotes a gladness. Willing and, and freely is the same word speaks of this, this movement, an uncompelled movement to sacrifice, to give something up. This is the heart of what worship is, is all about. It's about 
so much. These themes here are picked up by Paul. In 2 Corinthians uh, 8 and 9, as Paul is raising support for the church in Jerusalem that had provided so much, and he's, as he's collecting these monies, and he's, he's there in Greece, and he's in Corinth, and he's telling, or he's writing to those in Corinth about what their neighbors to the north in Macedonia had done. Now, Macedonia um, to Corinth was, it's a world apart. Corinth was hip, cool, rich, wealthy, you know, they had it all going. Um, Macedonia was kind of the poor backwater of the place. Right now, you might be thinking of analogies of where in Arkansas would be Macedonia, right? And Paul said, you know what those Macedonians did? First, they gave themselves to the Lord to consecrate. And then they gave of themselves to this work. Now, that's really the, the description here. They gave first to the Lord, then they gave to Paul. The motivation is found in verse 9 of, of, the, of chapter 8, that Jesus, out of his wealth, became poor so that we might become rich. See, that's, the, that's why there's joy in giving. It brings us right back to the gospel. It brings us to what Christ has done for us out of the, the abundance of his resources. You know, again, you, you look in, in uh, Chronicles 29, the, the great amount of resources that are there. How much more has Christ given to us? And that leads then in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where it has that, that great verse about being a cheerful giver. No, the joy that is part of that is is if it's not there, you've got to ask yourself the question, do you understand the implications of the gospel? Not driving you to shame or guilt, but finding joy in it because there's something so much greater. Joy comes from the one who's invested in us. The joy we experience comes not by determination within, but what Christ has done for us. You know, see, again, we're looking here not just at an ancient story for lessons for today, but we're looking at this repeated pattern, the principles that come about. You know, the, all this money that was invested in this temple that they, they built, it would last about 400 years, and in 70 AD it was torn down again. And this is why in the New Testament, this understanding of the temple, that's the church. 1 Corinthians 3, where, where Paul says, you, and it's a plural you, all y'all, you're the temple of God and his spirit dwells in you. Covenant, you are the temple. And you are investing in that temple. Ephesians 2, 23, we are, built, we are being built together in a dwelling place for God by his spirit. We are called to invest something far larger than bricks and mortar. As wonderful as they are, as places to gather, rooms to be able to finally sit and eat a meal together that's delightful but that is just that foretaste of where we're looking down the road investment began by Jesus's death and resurrection is a call to us to give up willingly to consecrate ourselves today now we can have a joy today and tomorrow as we see what God is doing in our midst as you think of those who you may know or may not know are preparing for ministry who may be your pastor 
10 years to come, may actually be the pastor who would pastor your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, leaving that legacy is so critical. It's what we're called to do. And so, may we, as we give of ourselves, be able to be like the people of David and rejoice greatly. Let's pray. You, our loving Father, we indeed are glad that you have worked your work of grace in and through us, that we, as we go here this night as we by your grace can gather again tomorrow and on the Lord's day would be reminded all that you have done in and through us for your honor and glory for it's in Christ's name we pray amen